Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephen Webb, author of the best-selling book, Education in a Violent World, A Practical Guide to Keeping Our Kids Safe. Dr. Webb is an award-winning educator, law enforcement officer, and the founder of Safe School Systems, a consulting group that helps schools and communities enact and enhance proven school safety tactics. He is a nationally known school safety expert who has been recognized by the National School Public Relations Associations with the Distinguished Service Award of Excellence and named a leader among us by the Southern Business Journal. Dr. Webb has been a leader for organizations across the nation and is currently a member of the American Association of School Administrators Governing Board, the Terrorism Task Force, School Safety Commission, and the Department of Children and Family Services Child Death Review Board. Dr. Webb is a certified ALICE Active Threat Training Instructor and Raider Solo Engagement Tactics Level 2 Instructor for Law Enforcement, and he is a professor at Southern Illinois University and McClendry University, specializing in school law and policy. Join me in welcome to Get Up Nation, Dr. Stephen Webb. Dr. Despart, will you share where you live and work? Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I live in Tunnel Hill, Illinois, which is the very southern tip of the state of Illinois. I'm a superintendent and a school resource officer at a small rural district called Goreville, Community Unit School District Number 1, right in the middle of the Shawnee National Forest. All right. And we'll be talking about your best-selling new book today. But first, can you go into your background and what experiences you've had that led you to want to take action to stop violence in schools? Sure. This is my 26th year as a as a school administrator. I've been a college professor and a law enforcement officer for the last decade. And during that time of being a school administrator, certainly I've seen a lot of ups and downs in terms of student behavior and the changes that kids have been experiencing since those early 90s, mainly technology. And that's why I devoted an entire chapter 
to this technology issue that, that the extreme information that kids are, are getting now and, and the way we're, we're taking that extreme information that they're receiving and then we're putting them back into a school that was designed in the early 1900s is, is directly in correlation to, to what we're seeing now in terms of student behavior. That's exciting to me to see your innovative mindset about how children learn today and outdated concepts that we're trying to get up to date, that we're trying to meet the needs of our children and our educators. You described the, quote, unworkability of an outdated system that was designed for a simpler world to keep our children safe. You describe how school systems are not looking at what you believe is the real problem, which is a skyrocketing suicide rate in children. You've mentioned how the CDC states that the second leading cause of death in teens is suicide, second only to automobile crash-related deaths. Will you share some about that? Sure. I mean, we, we probably heard about every single school shooting last year. All 26 school shootings, we probably heard about it or saw something about it on, on national media. They, they, they cover those things widely. But what we didn't hear about, this, this epidemic that we're really dealing with, is the fact that thousands of young people are killing themselves. Thousands. Every 40 seconds, somebody in the world commits suicide. Where is the outrage to this? Where is the national media on this issue? Suicide is the true epidemic, and it's in direct correlation to the reason why we're seeing so much of this mass shootings and other types of behaviors in our schools. We have to step up and do something about the mental health, the social-emotional learning, that kids need to be concentrating on these days rather than the standardized tests and the fact that society wants to to develop some type of arbitrary norm and then gauge everybody else outside of that norm as abnormal. And these prior school shootings, can you go into the detailed analysis that you've done on them? Is the majority of them due to mental illness? What are some of the facts and, and figures that you've gleaned from your analysis of these shootings? Well, there's been research to absolutely correlate these school shooters and their mental health issues. And, and actually, one, one particular research came up with 37 separate school shooting incidents where those perpetrators have either been withdrawing from or currently on some type of so- psychotropic medicine. Listen, we're a society that one in five boys have been diagnosed with ADHD, one in 11 girls. This is a situation where we diagnose them with some type of behavior issue while their brains are still developing, and then we give them a drug. We give them a drug to try to fix some type of behavioral issue that, that we as a society are causing because their, their experiences are different. Let's just, let's just take, for instance, we get eight hours of sleep a day. That's a little over 5,100 hours of waking time a year. A typical school will have these children for less than 1,000 of those hours. But when we do, we're bringing them into a building into a situation that was designed way before this type of information technology was available. So we're dealing with 4,100 hours or more of extreme stimulation and then putting them into a, a situation where we're telling them to sit down and be quiet. That's our fault. In your book, you explain how the para mindset method works and enables the guardians of our children a way to diffuse the tension that otherwise builds to the point of no return for some of our kids. Will you share some about this? Yes, it's one of those situations where I was looking for something to develop for teachers. Police officers have situational awareness. Soldiers have situational awareness because of the dangers of their job. We as educators do not. We go into that situation and we are forced to herd these kids through these these 
traditional classrooms like a bunch of cattle and, and try not to individualize them when they are individual. Their experiences are all separate. I believe that every child should have an IEP, not just special education children, every child, because their 4,100 hours, their baggage that they're bringing in our schools, every one of them is completely different. So why are we trying to treat them all like they're the same animal? And the para mindset, will you talk about how this is a solution? Sure. The para mindset is, is based on the situational awareness side of what we do every day. But what it does is the, the preparedness is not just your body, but your mind. I, I visited Parkland, Florida, and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and I interviewed people around that, around that community. And I interviewed this one gentleman that said, it shouldn't have happened here. It should have happened at my child's school, which is a neighboring school, because that's the dangerous school. This is the good kid's school. This is the, the rich kid's school. It shouldn't have happened here. That's the mindset that we utilize as adults within our settings. So what happened was they actually had a pretty good plan. They had a sentry outside. He identified somebody getting out of a car that shouldn't be there. He identified the person shouldn't have been there. He identified that the person had issues when they were there and at no time alerted the students in that district because his brain was telling him, well, trying to rationalize what he was seeing. Same thing with the inside sentry who did not address that kid immediately whenever he walked in that building. Nobody alerted the other students around the district because they, their brains were rationalizing what they saw. That's what we do as humans. Within our triune brain, we have the automatic response, the survival part of our brain. Then we have the emotional side of our brain, which decides to tell us whether we're scared or whether we're sad. But then we have the thinking part, and we're, we over-rationalize what we see. That's not just preparing our brains for the school shooter. But when the kid is experiencing something in their lives that is disastrous to them, it may not seem like it is to us. But kids these days, they're dealing with behaviors. They're dealing with emotions from constant, constant contact with their social circle. They can't get away from the bullying like we could back in the day, back in when we could go to church or go to school. And that was our social gathering. They can't get away with that because their social gathering is 24-7. So the para mindset gets us all in ready to respond to their world, not try to bring them into our world. And that brings me to the advocacy part of para, is preparedness, awareness of what's going on around you, the responsiveness that you should show to every single child, and then the advocacy. to When you see something going on with some of your peers, some of your other adult peers, quit trying to say one person can't fix this because you can one person can make a difference in a child's life. Some have advocated for school officials to arm themselves. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm a, I'm a trained raider, which means I went through school-specific training for law enforcement. It's a, an incredibly, incredibly terrible training to have to think about what you have to do within a school setting, particularly if it's a child that's the perpetrator. But as an administrator, as a school teacher, as an educator, I already had that nurturing side to me. I understood what went into schools. So when I went to the police academy, and I, I now, you know, most superintendents carry a briefcase. I, I carry at least two handguns and, and an assault rifle with me every time I go to work. I'm there because I'm there as a first response, as a zero-timed response. If you need that side of me, it's already a terrible day. So what I think is, we need somebody armed in every single school for that zero response. 
and they need to be specially trained law enforcement. If people want some of their educators to go through this law enforcement training, I think that municipalities would be absolutely in favor of that. But you can't expect a teacher with just a plain concealed carry license to be able to protect kids within that school setting. I think it's going to cause more of a dangerous situation because that concealed carry training is not school specific and it is not based on best research of what needs to be in schools like the National Association of School Resource Officers. And I've spoken with teachers and educators who think about a potential mass shooting at the school they work in every day they go to work. They think about this. This threat is deeply ingrained in our educators' minds today. I think about a lot of school teachers and post-traumatic stress, which is born of two elements, a sense of terror paired with a sense of helplessness. Certainly teachers who go into their field do this work because they're committed to helping children grow, pursue their potential and thrive. And now on their minds, they have no, usually no tactical training, and they have this idea that's looming that could any day could potentially be an act of mass violence in their classroom. How does your book help reduce a sense of helplessness in these educators and empower them to help troubled or mentally ill children get the help they need before they commit an act of violence? Well, in my book, if you take a look at the chapters, particularly about the awareness side of, of, of my para mindset. Not only am I trying to make teachers aware, but I'm also trying to make school boards aware and administrators aware. Nobody wants to think that their, their school is dangerous, but it's not just the school that's dangerous. It's the setting. So I've, I've also had uh, conducted Alice trainings in churches and businesses. Anytime you, you have a, an area that is a confined space and you have a large amount of people, those people that have a mental issue they're going to target that. That's why I utilize the, the word target. We're a target because we are a soft target and you can't harden that target. So if you're talking about a, a teacher and what they need, they need support. They need these to know that if they identify something outside of the norm, that somebody's going to be there to help them. But what we've done in our schools is we've made our social workers where they just they just concentrate on special education issues. We might have one social worker for a thousand students, and that's unworkable. You cannot, you cannot expect that person to be able to work on social emotional behavior if they've got a thousand kids on their on their caseload. That's our fault as a society because we believe that Common Core math and having one test so we can determine whether we're up to par with China or Finland. That seems to be what society wants to see out of our schools. They want to know whether we make adequate yearly progress out of all the years of the no child left behind that we know was a failure, but we're still doing it. That's putting that added pressure on teachers, on kids. We've got a third less people going into the teaching profession now. That's our fault as a society because we believe that those positions are not a necessity anymore, that we believe that those, those positions are just innate in our society. Instead of understanding that we stick all of these core curricular areas on there and, and shove kids into these classrooms, into these areas, and we're shoving out our vocational and our arts and our music, the things that kids love to do and connect with the school, because some politician wants to say, well, look what I'm doing for education because Finland's scores are better than us. I don't care about Finland. I don't care about China. I care about each and every individual child in my school, in my nation. And I want to fight for each individual child, not to fight that they be the same as a kid in Finland. Will you tell me in your mind the, the ideal state of education currently? What would a school or a system look like that creates 
every child thriving every day that they are engaged with education? Flexibility. People have to understand that this the standardized testing has got to go and we start we have to start looking at individualized testing. We have to look at the child when they walk in with their baggage, with whatever's going on in their life, and we have to deal with it at that moment in their world and quit trying to prove that they need to be in our world. Whenever they come in and they need social emotional work, they don't need to go into an English classroom and start working on, on graphing sentences. They need to be going to people and groups that can work on that social area because kids can't learn if they are in fear. Kids can't learn if they're experiencing trauma. And we have to learn to deal with that when they come into our schools because we have become that social catch-all. There ought to be at least two people that love a child, and that's their parents and their teachers. And right now, you're making the teachers have 30 kids in their classroom. They can't possibly give the individual attention that is necessary to save that child in their social emotional learning. That's our fault as a society, and I, it's, a, it's been a travesty for the last few years, starting with no child left behind. But it's time that we wake up and, and stop all of the standardizing kids and start individualizing them with differential instruction. So you're talking largely about a really pro-social environment. Are you talking about classrooms that are like really small class sizes or multiple teachers or multiple different kinds of people in that room, whether they have different focuses, accessing all the different kinds of intelligences that children have? I think of you know the multiple intelligence, I believe it was Gardner who talked about all the different ways that people have intelligence. What does that satisfying, amazing school system look like? What is that? The kid arrives at school. Is it a school? Is it outside? Is it in their home? What kind of world do we need to create here? And what does it look like? Well, it's definitely not in their home. One of the things that we're having to battle is on this on this technology side, kids are isolating themselves. And then when they get around humans, they're having issues being able to, to work with those humans in a collaborative fashion. So that's something that we need to work with too. But research research is very clear that there should be no more than 15 kids in a classroom if you truly want that connectedness with those children. And that's that's not normal. That's not what legislators believe is efficient. You know, we want to use that word efficiency. What we need is at least, at the very least, cut our class sizes, get more social workers in our schools, get more recess, more more chances for kids to interact with each other on an informal basis rather than in, in a in a math classroom where we're telling them to sit down and be quiet. Those days are over. They can get that information from Google in five seconds. We need to teach them how to work with other human beings when they're in the same room because they're dealing with other human beings electronically for 4,100 hours at least in a year. That's something we're going to have to combat but that means we have to go into their world, and adults adults don't want to do that. They want to, they want to compare them to everybody else, which is what our world looked like in you know in the nation at risk days. Sure, I like that focus that you're you're really challenging people on is to focus on the world that children live in instead of the selfish or the ego driven focus of just trying to make everyone change to our comfort level. I think it is a total act of service 
to create a kind of world where children feel a sense of value. And if we constantly shame them for not being good enough, if we constantly give them messages that they need to constantly change, they're going to develop a shame concept. And I, I really value your insights into creating a school system or a school educational environment where emotional intelligence is taught, where pro-social development is taught where dysfunctional systems of negative, especially with the epidemic addiction issues that deal with the opiates and different challenges and poverty that we're dealing with. In addition to everything that's happening with coronavirus, I mean, we really need to wake up to the present moment and really seek to serve these children and these families to become thriving individuals that can work well with others, that find the value in not only themselves, but but others. And to have leaders like you creating the way for that, I treasure the opportunity to have you share your insights into this and where we're failing so that we can get to a, a place where they're thriving, where we also, where, where adults can have the experience, the joy of seeing them thrive instead of constantly the barrage, the constant intergenerational animosity that I see in the news every day talking about millennials or boomers or this or that. I wanted to ask, we're in this now. How can teachers and educators stay resilient and thriving as they pursue their passion and commitment to educating in this current world, in this current system? Well, to go back to the school safety side, something I use in, in all my presentations, I used to be a, a basketball coach, high school boys basketball coach, and my cheerleading sponsor's son is come back there the year for the state of Kentucky because Mason Cosner ran cross country with a bullet in his neck because he was one of the victims of the Marshall County shooting. And when I, when I called his mother to offer my help and to find out if there's anything I could do, something that stuck with me, and I, and I asked her, what would you, what would you tell people? She said, Steve, she said, uh, we were within a quarter inch of having to bury him. And that stuck with me and that sticks with me so much that I tell everybody that you are that quarter inch difference in the life of a child. Whether you act upon that is going to be the difference in life or death for somebody along the way of your career. And then how can you comment on how children can become more resilient and move toward thriving as they deal with mental illness during their growth and development? How can we empower and support them into becoming their very best selves? Well, with our, with our children, I think you said it very well a while ago. I think you said something about them seeing the worth in themselves. What happens is when a child goes from that, that setting, that virtual setting that they live in and, and prosper in all night long, and then we bring them into a setting where where their behavior is questioned because we're just we're not stimulating them. We're not we're not providing them with that with that surrounding that can give them that room to grow that they so desire. I mean kids desire to grow their minds, even if we think that they're not, even if we think that they're lazy, they're not. They're constantly looking for information because that's how they're growing up, is in that instant information. And then if we if we take that and we show them when they walk into school and we we look at their individual needs and ask them individually what they need in that time, then I think that we grow that connectedness to school. And there is nothing that makes a child a better leader, a more successful than connecting to their society, connecting to their community, connecting to their schools. Because when they do that, now they have connected with that outside world in human form, in that form where they're together with humans, not virtual. And I think once we do that, you will see this, this behavior issue, these these ADHD designations. This 
I think it will also help the open epidemic because I think it's it's one of those situations where we throw a pill every time we we think that there's something outside of the norm. We have to redefine what norm is. And it's normal for an individual child what their norm is. We need to set their baseline and then determine where they need to go from there instead of the baseline of Finland or the baseline of California or the baseline of, of whatever. Once we do that, then we connect with that individual child and we don't treat them like a cow going through a chute into their herd. And that's the way we're doing kids today. Doctor, thank you, first of all, for being solution-oriented, second of all, for tackling one of the most troubling realities in our current world, and for creating a response that can save lives, remove stigma associated with mental illness, and refreshing our perspective on how we can all be more resilient in our education system. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. As you take on this monumental challenge, who are you thankful for today? I am thankful for my family that they allow me to travel all over the U.S. And uh, they understand when I come home, I'm coming home with trauma, too, because talking about children dying and children dying in shootings and, and suicide takes a toll on on them and me as a as an individual. So I'm, I'm so thankful for their support and, and the way they handle all of this stress of me being gone all the time. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? You know, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for people that that want to get this out, that want to that want to hear from from people who are in the trenches. We've got a lot of researchers, we've got a lot of people out there that want to believe they're an expert, but I've seen it. I've been there and all I'm trying to do is is help kids and make them the center of our attention. So I'm really thankful that you guys are are pushing this out. How do you fuel the fire within you as you deal with this? That seems to be an intrinsic issue with me. I'm in my, my days of where I'm starting to think about retirement now. And I, and I became that, that old fogey that I used to make fun of that, that didn't understand me when I was a kid. I've become that person. And that's why I'm striving so hard to get people to understand they have become that person as well. So I think that motivates me greatly to get this information out there so I don't see one more kid killing themselves or one more kid going in and killing others. I, I want that day to be over. Just like this this virus is going to be over someday, I want there to be a vaccine for what we're dealing with in our schools. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? It certainly taught me to value my family and my my children. I'm in the later stages in terms of my, my kids. I've got a high school junior. I've got four kids. Three of them have graduated. I'm starting to have grandchildren now. It certainly values the fact that if I don't get this change, they're going to be going into that same, my grandchildren is going to be going in that same situation that I've had to deal with with my kids. And, and those kids in Marshall County, Kentucky and, and Parkland, Florida, these kids that are dealing with a world of, of anytime you go into a, a confined area, you could be a target. If I can get that stopped before my next kid gets there, then I, I think that that is an extreme motivator for me to keep pushing through. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Speaking in front of large groups uh, on uh, kids killing kids and kids killing themselves. I, I never thought that would be something that I could get up and do. It's such a terrible topic. But as a law enforcement officer, I've seen people in the worst 10 minutes of their life. And you know what? It didn't have to happen. I think I think we could have saved them prior to that happening. As a police officer, I'm, I'm generally in that reactive mode, just like SROs, people with weapons in, in schools. That's a reactive mode. I want people to concentrate on the prevent mode. And, and that's, what, that's why I'm here today. 
I'm, I'm on stages everywhere because I want them in prevent mode and, and to quit thinking one person can't do it. And then what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could do? Well, writing this book was certainly something I never thought I would do. And tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be meeting with some other radio hosts from another state, from, a, from another area. And we're going to be talking about this. And I never thought that I would be part of my daily schedule would be talking through radio and television and parents and board members about how to change our schools to, to a, a new world. You know, I, I was one of those that was ingrained with education all of my life. My dad was an educator, a 35-year teacher and principal coach. That was what I thought my calling was. And it seems to me that God has called me now to make a difference in the way we, we treat kids when they walk in with their own baggage. And so that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? Well, in terms of the book, you can go to educationinaviolentworldbook.com. That will take you to the, the book's website, if you will, and, and you, can, you can go on to Amazon and, and purchase the book. DrSteveWebb.com is one of my websites that I use for, for speaking engagements. If you'd like for me to come in and talk to, your, talk to your teachers, talk to your community, I'll talk to anybody. I'm, I'm now starting to go to businesses and churches, and if you think that I can help you, please give me a call. We'll try to figure out some way that I can get there. You can also go to safeschoolsystems.org. That is the consulting organization that I've developed in order to be able to bring a team of people in, of administrators and, and law enforcement officers, because this combination of law enforcement and, and educator is so unique. I mean, I've, I've done interviews on NRA TV and all of these radio stations because I get the education side. The law enforcement side is secondary. And many of our, our workshops that we're going to are law enforcement we will come in and save you. And that's not true. We shouldn't have to rely on just law enforcement. We need to rely on ourselves and our own brains to stop these events before they before they occur. You can find out all kinds of information from me through those, those areas as well. Excellent. Doctor, it's been an absolute honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me.